It's summer, and I hope you all get to sit around the campfire and tell ghost stories at least once, and maybe have some s'mores. I have a favorite ghost story. It's called Big Hairy Hands and Big Red Lips. And someday I'll share it with you. I have great memories of going to Girl Scout camp as a kid and telling stories around the campfire. And those stories scared me and totally kept me awake. Now I'm a grown up, and these days I'm kept awake by different scary stories. The ones that keep me up at night now are about my patients that come in with mysterious symptoms, things I can't figure out. So in this episode, I'm going to share with you some of the strangest patient stories I've had in the past few months and how I figured out the diagnosis. I'm Dr. Wendy Hunter, and I'm the pediatrician next door. I'm that doctor friend you call for practical advice about your kid's health. I mix the science of medicine with the reality of parenting. The first story is called The Boy Who Couldn't Smell. I know that doesn't sound that scary, but imagine if you couldn't smell food would not taste the same, and that's really scary to me. The story begins at the tail end of a global viral pandemic. There was a virus that, unlike any other virus ever before, caused some of its victims to lose their sense of taste and smell. Maybe you've heard of it. So everyone was talking about this strange symptom. They were talking about it in the news, among friends, and it wasn't something people really talked about before the pandemic. Most people were used to not being able to smell very well when they had a cold, but this was something new and different. And that's when this 17-year-old boy came into my clinic with what seemed no different than something that had become a problem for lots of people. Before I went into his exam room, I looked at his chart, just like we doctors do, and it said the reason he made an appointment was because he had lost his sense of smell. You see, Doctors read the few words describing why a patient has made an appointment before they meet the patient, and we kind of decide what the problem is going to be before we even talk to them. We call this the chief complaint. It doesn't mean the patient is complaining. It's just, it's the reason for their visit, in their own words. In this case, I read the chief complaint, and I naturally assumed the patient had recently had the pandemic virus. Doctors always form this plan in our head before we talk to the patient. We think about what we might need to ask about and what we might need to do. It can be really hard for a doctor when they walk in the exam room with one idea of what's wrong with the patient, and then the patient starts to tell a story that doesn't fit their idea at all. Humans tend to see what we expect to see, and it's really hard to see something else. We do everything we can to convince our brain that whatever we hear fits our concept, fits our plan. The problem in this case was that the patient was supposed to tell me that he had just had the virus and now he can't smell. I know how to fix that. I know what the problem is, but that's not what he said at all. Now I had to pay attention. I had to think harder. I was on guard. I was ready. He told me that he and his mother were in a store a few days ago, an empty store at the mall late at night. No, not really. It was just like a grocery store. And his mother turned to him and casually said, Ugh, that lady's perfume smells so bad. It makes me feel sick, you know? And that was the moment when this 17-year-old boy suddenly realized he had no idea what his mother was talking about. He started to think back through all the times people had commented or complained about bad smells. And this was the first time he wasn't sure he had ever smelled anything in his life. And this is what was scary to me. When I realized he really couldn't smell at all, and it wasn't just the typical virus thing, that's when my imagination ran wild. 
You see, the way doctors think is that if we can't just see that something fits a pattern that we've seen before and make a quick diagnosis, we do this thing where we make a list of all the things that something could be. And the top of that list for not smelling is a brain tumor. In medicine, we tend to think about a patient's diagnosis in two ways. We make that list of all the things it could be, and the tops of that list are bad things. And then we list all the common things. Then we use that list to ask you questions that help us cross things off. And if the list is still long, that's when we order tests to cross off more things. Not being able to smell is called anosmia. It can be temporary or it can be permanent. It can start from birth or it can start later in life. And all of those characteristics give a clue as to the cause. They help us narrow down the list. Doctors also have to have some idea of how everything in the body works so that we can think through the problem. So for example, we know how the smell system of the body works. When a particle with an odor molecule is floating around in the air, it goes through the nasal canal to the nasal cavity where olfactory receptor neurons reach down from the olfactory bulb that's in the brain. Every nasal cavity has 5 million receptors. From the receptor neurons, a signal is sent through the olfactory bulb in the brain to interpret the smell in multiple areas throughout the brain. So if you have a problem in any of these areas of the brain, it's going to make it so that you can't process the smell. Hence, my worry about a brain tumor pressing on one of the smelling parts of the brain. When you understand this pathway that odor takes, it also makes sense that a mechanical blockage in the nose can prevent odors from reaching the olfactory nerve. And the blockage could be something that's like not a big deal, like an infection or nasal polyps. So knowing all of this, things I learned in medical school, I started asking this kid some questions. In the case of this 17-year-old patient, I started by asking questions to narrow down whether he had never smelled in his life or if he remembered smelling at some point and then something happened that made him not smell anymore. And after talking to him, I was confident that he truly had never smelled anything in his life. So I ordered an MRI. Actually, it was way more complicated than that, but writing a referral to a specialist and getting prior authorization from his insurance company, that doesn't make for a very interesting story. It's really scary, but in a different way. So a month later, the MRI comes back. The MRI of the brain gave us the answer. He did not have olfactory bulbs in his head. It's a really rare condition, but it's more common than you would think. And it can be hard to diagnose because humans aren't wired to recognize things that are missing. If you've never smelled anything in your life, would you really know any different? You might not see the color fuchsia right now the way the rest of us see it. You might see it differently. How would you know? And would you really be missing anything anyway? So sometimes I think people do have these symptoms and they just don't bring them up. He didn't have anything super scary after all. However, not being able to smell actually can be dangerous because someone who can't smell can't smell dangerous odors like smoke from a fire, spoiled food, or the smell from a gas leak. The next story I have to tell you is called The Girl Without Puberty. It's about a girl's first period. 
So many things about this can be scary. First, just talking to a girl about her period is anxiety provoking. Like, what if she asks you questions? And having your period, of course, is pure terror at first. I mean, remember how scared you were that you would spot on the back of your pants and then have to stand up and present to your class at the chalkboard? Kind of awkward. Well, this patient was only eight years old and she got her first period. Her mom sent me an email message to ask me about something completely unrelated. And she just mentioned at the end of her email, oh, by the way, I just wanted to let you know she got her first period. And I paused and I thought, wait a minute, she's only eight years old. That's too young. I thought, hadn't I just seen her for a well-child visit? And I remembered that I didn't think she had any signs of puberty when I saw her. And that was just a few months ago. So I checked my note from the visit. We do well checks for exactly this reason. We want to know your kid's baseline in case something happens. And at our well child checks, we document something called the Tanner stage. It's a numeric scale that designates which stage of puberty a kid is in. Five is a full adult, and one means there's no signs of puberty at all. My note said she was a one for all the private areas. We scale the chest and the pubic area separately. So that's when my internal alarm went off. That's my Dr. Spidey sense. You won't see it on my face when I'm in the exam room with you, but it happens. I get a little freaked out sometimes. We doctors all have really good poker faces, I think, and we hide what we're really thinking if we think it might be something bad. Oh, geez, I thought to myself, what's the list of things that can cause bleeding before puberty? Before I looked it up in my fancy doctor database, I knew the causes are things like genital trauma, a tumor or cyst on the ovary, abuse, or a vaginal infection. And none of these are good things. The thing is, you can't get your period until you at least have shown some signs of puberty starting. All right, now what? What should I do? I had to investigate. I looked up some more stuff and I made a longer list of possibilities. She came into the office on a dark and cloudy day. It was dark and eerie from the coastal fog. I mean, I live in Southern California and it gets pretty scary here when we don't see the sun for all of May. We call it May gray and June gloom. I mean, it's legit scary. We're like zombies out here and even scarier, we complain that it's like 66 degrees outside. I mean, we really buckle down. We make soups and stews and stay inside. Okay, back to my investigation. I ordered a bone age x-ray. That's an x-ray that will tell me if her bones look like they are the same age as her actual chronologic age. And if her bones look older than her age, that can be caused by hormones. So I ordered some blood tests, lots of hormone tests. And everything came back normal. Her hormones were all at kid levels, not puberty levels. So I scratched a bunch of stuff off my list. The only thing left was something I had never seen before. It's called benign prepubertal vaginal bleeding. The super crazy thing about this is that people as young as three years old can have this happen. A three-year-old can get a random menstrual cycle and nobody knows why it happens. It's pretty uncommon, of course, but like not being able to smell, this might happen more often than we know because a kid just doesn't tell their parent or they don't notice or it only happens once and the parent doesn't think much about it. 
The average age for having a random benign episode of vaginal bleeding is actually eight years, two months, which was exactly the age of my patient, but it can be a lot younger. About half the time, the child will only have one menstrual cycle and that's it until they start puberty. But a quarter of kids will have two bleeds and another quarter of kids will have more than three bleeding episodes. And then it just stops. Eventually, they go through normal puberty and get regular real periods. The thing that makes this different, and you can know it's this benign menstruation, is that the kid is not going to have any little boobies or grown-up hair. If a kid is under age 10 and has hair or boobies, it's more likely that they have early puberty, and that's something that does need more investigation. In the U.S., the average age of the first period is 12. So if your child bleeds before this, it's important to tell their doctor. The lesson here is beware of things that don't fit a normal pattern. If something is unexpected, pause, pay attention. It could be a clue to something bigger. My last story is called The Girl with the Bloody Feet. That sounds like a good scary story title, right? It was just a regular afternoon this past spring. It was beautiful outside. And Emily, not her real name, was running like she always did. But this day, she noticed she felt short of breath. She couldn't breathe like she usually could. For the next week, every day she went running, the same thing happened. As soon as she started running, she would feel weak and tired. Was it a strange being in the trees next to the sidewalk? Were they sucking her soul? She did think she heard sounds in the bushes, or was she crazy? She kept going back day after day, running more and more miles, but getting so tired she had to rest. Her heart was pounding. What should she do? Well, she called her dad. He brought her to my office to tell me the story, and what did I think? Of course, like every other story I've told you, my first thought was cancer. You know now, first you think of the scary things, then you think of the common things. I ran a hemoglobin test in the office to look for anemia. And wow, she was extremely anemic. Was it vampires? Her blood count was so low, it's hard for me to think how she got that low. If you're that anemic, there are two categories you need to think about. Either you're not making red blood cells, and that can be from cancer or from not eating enough iron, or you're losing blood. But where could she be losing blood from? I made my list. First, anemia, blood loss. I did have one patient who had intestinal cancer and he lost blood from his intestines without knowing it. Then I thought, okay, she's a girl. Could she be having heavy periods and losing blood that way? What about ways she might not be making blood cells? Does she not eat enough iron so she can't make the cells or does she have the cancer? I asked her all the questions to start crossing things off my list. She has light periods. They don't last too long. She eats a lot of meat and plenty of iron-rich foods. So I tested her intestinal contents, otherwise known as poop or stool. I tested it for blood. Nothing there. So I sent her to the lab for blood tests. Aside from being anemic and having low hemoglobin, which I already knew, her tests looked fine, except she was iron deficient. All right, thank goodness I had something to hang my hat on. Now I have to figure out, where are her blood cells going? Her iron stores were so low, so I knew she was losing iron somehow, but she was eating plenty of iron. I asked her more questions. 
And the answer was in how much she was running. It was a lot. She has something called foot strike hemolysis, also known as runner's anemia. It turns out that iron deficiency anemia is a common cause of anemia in athletes. Her red blood cells were being broken down when they went through the bottom of her feet whenever she pounded on her feet. It takes a lot of running to happen. It can happen in other athletes, but it's a lot more common in runners. So how do you prevent this? All right, first, check your shoes. Are they worn out or compressed down? They say if you have 300 to 500 miles on your shoes, it's time to get new ones. The next thing, check what you're running on. Concrete is the worst surface for breaking up your red blood cells. Asphalt's a little bit better and dirt or a running track is your best choice. Emily was running on the sidewalks a lot. If you're running on concrete, you actually might want to check for anemia. Just ask your doctor. Emily cut back on running. She changed the surface she was running on and she started an iron supplement. It took her about three months to start feeling good again. That's how long it takes to make new red blood cells and to get back to a normal level. It's okay to take iron if you're a runner, but talk to your doctor about how much you should take because you can take too much. Plus, iron supplements can be constipating, which is also scary. I hope you enjoyed my scary campfire stories. I've got lots more to share. Maybe check out my Halloween episode. It's going to be great. If you find yourself thinking back or sharing any of these great medical mysteries, do me a favor and leave a review for the show. It would really help me out. And if you have a good story or something to share, drop me a message on Instagram. I'm the pediatrician next door. Happy summer. For more from the pediatrician next door, find me on the web at pediatriciannextdoorpodcast.com. If you've got a question about the weird things kids do, send an email to hello at pediatriciannextdoorpodcast.com for a chance to hear your voice on the show. I'm Dr. Wendy Hunter, and I'm the pediatrician next door. This show is produced by Red Rock Music. Make sure to subscribe and leave a review wherever it is you're listening. I'll be back next time with more.